Uh, I'd now like to welcome Kira Moye to read today's scripture, uh, and then I will be back uh, for today's teaching. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kira. Thanks be to God. Uh, Of the three aspects of the work of Christ, uh, his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, which one of those would you assume that is the most controversial and the most offensive for people? Uh, you know, his life uh, actually uh, is, has, there's a pretty great consensus around the fact that the life of Jesus is of great uh, value to look at and imitate. Uh, the vast majority of the world's population agrees with the life of Jesus being something of great importance, not that controversial or offensive. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus really is only controversial to the extent that one either believes it happened or it doesn't, it didn't happen, but it's generally not very offensive. But what is scandalous, controversial, and offensive can be the death of Jesus. Now, we've been in a short series looking at the work of Christ. Uh, we've entitled it, in It Is Finished, to see, leading up to Easter, the full work of what Jesus came to do for us And today, we focus on what can be one of the most difficult elements of the Christian faith, the most difficult for people to embrace because the death of Jesus assumes things that we do not naturally want to acknowledge. And this passage in Isaiah 53, very famous passage, presents to us those assumptions and gives us a full picture of why it is that the death of Jesus can be so confronting to us. Uh, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time giving a whole lot of context to the passage, which is something uh, I would normally do. Essentially, I'm just going to say this about Isaiah 53. Uh, This is a passage, it's a prophecy that was written hundreds of years before Jesus, speaking of the coming Messiah, who is Jesus, speaking of his death. And for those with ears to hear, and eyes to see, this passage shows us why the death of Jesus is actually life to us. And so let's consider Isaiah 53. Specifically, we're going to spend some time looking at verse 5, which let me read that again for us. It says this, it says, our, uh, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now there's three assumptions in that verse that I want to look at. First, there's an assumption that we are sinful. Second, there's an assumption, an assumption that we're sick. And then finally, there's an assumption that Christ brings peace. Let's look at those three assumptions. First, the first assumption that we are sinful. You cannot read this passage or any other passages that reference the cross of Christ and not see that the cross is absolutely incomprehensible unless we understand that sin is the central cause of Christ's death. Now, what does it mean? Look at our passage. I mean, what does it mean to be a transgressor? 
Well, it means that there is a law that one has either ignored or disobeyed or rejected. I mean, it says that uh, Christ was crushed for our iniquities. What are iniquities? Uh, Iniquities are immoral or um, unjust behaviors. It is acting in unjust or selfish ways. And then look at verse 6. We see that uh, we are sheep, it says, that have gone astray. And it means that one has rejected and turned away from their source of protection and provision in life, the shepherd. I mean, what are sheep that have wandered from a shepherd? I mean, those are sheep that are vulnerable to the harsh and unapologetic conditions of the wild. All of which is what the Bible calls sin. Our transgressions, our iniquities, our wanderings are the reason for the cross. Now, these ideas uh, are what make the cross so controversial and jarring for many, mostly because for many, including some Christians, we don't approach God or ourselves from, with these kinds of Christian assumptions and beliefs. Explain what, you, what I mean by that. Almost 15 years ago now, uh, two sociologists, Christian Smith and Lena Denin, Melina Denin, Denin, wrote a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And in it, they sought to discover the core beliefs of teenagers, even those who were Christians. Of course, those teenagers now, 15 years later, are in their late 20s, early 30s. Uh, but many of the claims that they discovered about these, uh, these teens still really hold up as the dominant belief system of many today. Uh, As a result of these ideologies that they studied, they ended up coining a phrase called moralistic therapeutic deism. Maybe you've heard this before. Over the last 15 years, uh, there has been endless uh, uses for that research. Uh, But in essence, uh, what they discovered is really quite informative to the current cultural landscape that we find ourselves in, again, even amongst many Christians, because they were, it really boiled down to what I think are three core beliefs uh, that came out of this study. Right? The first dominant belief amongst many is that we are to be good people. That's the moralistic part. Uh, That good is defined usually along one's uh, own interpretation about what is good or broader cultural uh, interpretations of what is good. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the primary uh, purpose of life is to be happy. So as a result of that, God's job is to take care of me and make me happy. That's where the therapeutic thing comes in. Uh, And then the third thing was that he really should stay out of my life until I need him. That's the deism thing. Uh, the, the basic idea that God doesn't really get involved in our lives or demand really anything from us. He's distant. Now, of course, from that vantage point, which is really the dominant belief system amongst many, the notion of sin and transgressions and iniquities and punishments just doesn't make any sense. But let's consider this dominant belief system and the different versions that exist of it. I mean, is it true that God just wants us to be good people? And if so, what in the world does it mean to be good? I mean, is there some standard of what is actually good that's not dependent on our own opinions? Because when we embrace ideas 
like justice and equity and morality, what are those except ideas that one could decide to embrace or reject? I mean, what is just and equitable and moral for me might not be the same for you, and so who is right in all of that? And do these concepts mean anything unless we are all subject to a certain standard about them? I mean, I would say no. They're actually meaningless concepts unless, of course, those ideas are woven into the fabric of how things ought to be in the world. The other thing that we see is, is it really God's job just to make us happy? If so, if, God, if that is God's job to make us happy, he is failing miserably at that right now, especially. And if that is the case, he's actually terrible at it most of the time. He has failed most people across most of human history, if that's really his job. And also, the last thing is, is it true that God is uninvolved in our lives and does not really demand anything from us? Now, if he was powerful enough to be at the center of creating the cosmos, does that mean that he's not then powerful enough to be at the center of sustaining the cosmos by being intimately involved in his creation? I mean, what if, though? I mean, what if this ideology uh, is ultimately powerless and meaningless? This dominant perspective, what if it really offers us nothing? I mean, what if woven into the fabric of the universe, there are standards or laws that lead to the flourishing of all? But the rejection of those standards and those laws creates absolute chaos and disorder. And what if these standards are not just optional principles, but rather they are fundamental to knowing what it means to be fully human? What if God's job is not just to make us happy, but rather what if God is committed to crushing the chaos and disorder that exists in the world? And as a result, for a time, maybe that makes us unhappy. What if, maybe, most importantly, God is not just some uninvolved overseer of the cosmos? What if he refused to passively allow the chaos and disorder to remain in the world? And what if that chaos and disorder that exists in the world, what if he called that sin? I mean, though the concept, concept of sin might be hard for some to consider, I would argue that we all want a concept of sin to exist in one form or another. Even if we reject that term, I mean, think about what sin is. It is an acknowledgement that something ought not to be a certain way. You know, when injustice or violence or selfishness or greed exists, we want to point that out and call it out as wrong. And that's a good and right thing to do. But why is it wrong? It's because we intuitively know that it's not the way that things ought to be. We have that sense because we were created for a world without the presence of such things. And we know their existence is a violation of how things ought to be. And this is why the cross of Christ 
is so important and necessary to understand. It is God's refusal to allow sin, chaos, disorder, which is so often a violation of his standard, a standard that is woven into the fabric of creation. He refuses to allow it to reign over the creation that he once called good. And so the cross of Christ, rightly understood, is Christ taking upon himself the consequences of our chaos and disorder. It is Christ being pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, experienced the punishment that was ours. The cross makes no sense without the assumption that we are sinful. But the other assumption is that from uh, Isaiah 53 is also that we are sick. I mean, look at the end of verse 5. It says, by his stripes, we are healed. You know, I wonder, do you recognize that sickness and death are a consequence of living in a world that is marred by the effects of sin? I mean, do we see sin and death being a consequence of chaos and disorder? Now, of course, we understand that sickness and death, they come to us in a variety of different forms. But do we recognize that sickness and that death, that they're not how things ought to be either? You know, in some ways, when we see sin in our world and we say that is not how things ought to be, when we see sickness and death in our world, we should also say the same. You know, I say all this. And I say all this to get to this one point. In this season, I do not know if we could be experiencing this more palpably in a time when sickness and the possibility of sickness seems to be ruling over us. And I wonder, do you have a deep sense of this just isn't how things ought to be? I mean, if you have that impulse, it's a right impulse. This impulse is correct because when we are confronted with sickness and death, we realize, no, there's something fundamentally wrong with this. I mean, we do say things like death is a natural part of life, but deep down, we know that something is wrong with death. And from the biblical perspective, that is true. Experiencing sickness and death should not be normal. And again, from the biblical perspective, not only has sin impacted us personally, but sin has impacted all of creation. Genesis 3, Romans 5 tells us that because of sin, death has entered into the world. Sickness and death are a consequence of the fabric of God's creativity being unfurled. Death and chaos and disorder as we know it are all the result of sin. And what power do we have against death? I mean, we try to delay it. We try to mitigate against it. And yet in the end, it will take us all because we know in the end, we are powerless against its inevitability. And I don't care who you are. That just doesn't seem right. And this is why the cross of Christ is so important because according to Isaiah 53, the cross brings healing to those who are sick. Because of the cross, sickness and death are defeated. I mean, I don't want to go too much into this because this, we'll be looking at this next week, but this is the power of the resurrection. None of what, am I, what, am I, what I am saying right now matters if Christ did not resurrect. 
Now, next week, we will consider it more fully and why we should believe that this resurrection has actually happened. But if it has happened, if it did actually occur, then we have to wrestle with and deal with everything that the Bible says about our condition and the problems and the sickness and the death that exists in the world. The idea that we are sinful and the need for Christ to take our consequence, the consequence of our sin, and to realize that sickness and death are the result of that sin. They, they are crazy and asinine ideas if Jesus did not rise from the dead. But if he did, we have to take seriously all of this. Now, with all that said, what do we do with the fact that what I just said, I believe to be true, that uh Christ is our healing, that as a result of the resurrection, we can cling to certain promises uh, that are to come, that the healing has been accomplished, yet we still get sick, yet we will still experience death. I mean, couldn't we say that sickness and death have been defeated as a result of the cross? I mean, we just, we just said that. But what about, and also, but what about our sin? You know, if Christ has conquered sin, which is amazing, why do we still experience sin and the effects of it? Why is there still chaos and disorder in the world? I mean, doesn't it matter? It doesn't matter. If you are the most committed Christian or the most godless heathen, we're all going to get sick. Death will eventually befall us. You cannot escape it. We cannot cheat it. It will get all of us at some point, which is why we need a reminder of the final assumption. Lastly, that Christ brings peace. You know, Christian theology, there's a concept of the already not yet. It is essentially what that essentially means, that there are things that we uh, that have been accomplished that we have not yet fully experienced. Uh, one of the best examples I've heard of this is um, D-Day in World War II. Uh, that was the day, of course, that the Allied forces stormed the beaches of France's Normandy, Normandy region. And many called that the beginning of the end of the war. Uh, the Allied forces uh, or they achieved a victory through this, uh, through this battle that ended up decisively ending the war, even though more battles would continue after it. But even though more battles would continue, the victory had essentially been accomplished. It had been finished. Now, similarly, Christ has already accomplished your healing, even though you might not experience it in its fullness until one day when the war finally ends with his return. I mean, Christ has already given you the eternal life that he speaks of in John 3, even though you might not have yet experienced it in its fullness until you experience your own resurrection. Your own resurrection has been accomplished by Christ. It is finished. And the hope that we cling to in the midst of the season is found in verse 5. That as a result of Christ doing all that he has done, he has brought us peace. What does that mean? Well, quickly, there are a couple ways that the Bible talks about peace. One way that the Bible talks about peace, the idea of having peace with God. Uh, in Romans 5, 
We see this idea that we are justified by Christ. We talked about this last week, meaning that we have been given his perfect performance record. We are justified and accepted based on what Christ has accomplished for us. And as a result, Romans 5 tells us that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that peace is not uh, peace in the sense of a, a feeling of rest or a feeling of calm, but rather that's the kind of peace that comes between two enemies who were once at odds with each other. See, our transgressions, our iniquities, our wanderings, our rejection of God as ruler over us, that put us at odds with him. But Christ, in his death, crushes the power of sin so that those who trust in him to do so now are in right relationship with God, now have peace with God. But the other way that the Bible talks about peace is that there is a peace of God. That peace of God, I think one of the best uh, examples of that is in Philippians 4. Paul says these words. He says in verse 6, he said, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, it's important to know that when Paul was writing these words, he was in prison. He was facing death. He had been beaten. He had been sick. These were dire circumstances for him. Yet in the midst of it, he calls us to not be anxious, but to pray and to be thankful. And as a result, there is peace. There is a peace of God that comes, a sense of rest that surpasses all understanding. And what is that? What is it that gives that peace and rest? Well, it's the cross. Why? Because the sin and the brokenness in me is ultimately conquered. And when he says to come before God in prayer, that assumes that we are able, well, the things that we talked about last week, that we are able to come into the presence of God with confidence as his children. For Christ has accomplished a great work on the cross. It is finished that now allows us to come right to the throne room of God as we are unified to our Savior. And though it is true that the presence of sin still exists, it has already been vanquished until one day we experience it in its fullness. That should bring us peace, a sense of rest, to know that we are in right relationship with God. But I can also have a peace where I'm not worried about anything because the consequences of sin, which are sickness and death, they've been defeated on the cross. Christ's work was sufficient to crush the head of sickness and death, and which means this, is that in sickness and death, we do not have to be anxious. For we have no, for they ultimately have no power over us. I mean, though we are sick and though we will die, we have also been healed and we shall never die. And Paul calls this kind of peace, peace that surpasses all understanding, because unless you have this kind of hope, death gets the final word. But because of the cross, death doesn't get the final word. Christ gets the final word. Now, my friends, I draw on all of this for us right now for several reasons. One mainly being 
that many are facing sickness and death. With COVID-19, the deaths that they are projecting uh, to likely uh, occur, it's going to impact all of us. On the other side of this crisis, we will be different. We will not be the same. And even beyond COVID-19, we are facing sickness and death in many other ways. And I want you to know that if you are a Christian, on the cross, Jesus crushed sin and death. And as a result, God has welcomed you into his kingdom. And that kingdom is a kingdom where sin and death are no more. That is already yours. It is finished. And you can cling to that hope. For we are promised not only that we have peace with God, but also that we have a peace of God that absolutely boggles the mind and is beyond understanding. And I would encourage you with this. This great hope that we have, bring that hope to people right now. There are people that desperately need that kind of hope that only the cross can give them. They need it now more than ever. With all that said, let me leave you with verses from 1 Corinthians 15. A powerful declaration of what Christ has done. Hear these words. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you have sent your Son to accomplish a great work on our behalf. He has crushed sin and death. It is done. It is finished. It is ours. Life is ours. And though we face sickness and death, we trust that one day you will finish the great work that you began and we will be brought in fully and completely to your kingdom where sickness and death are no more. Would you help us to cling to that truth? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.